should anybody be, be interested in, in coming to that? It's a totally optional thing. And I will bring a few more copies of that list of passages around which one of the three questions in the final examination uh, are uh, going to be built. He doesn't have that. You will need that in preparing for uh, in preparing for the examination. Well, we've reached the apogee of the tragedy of this uh, of, of this book, uh, and it is of a very surprising kind. The fifth book is so rich that I can only touch upon certain themes. I'm going to try to throw out a few others for you to uh, think think about, though. I've called the Troilus of Book 5 a hermeneutical hero, using that uh, rather fancy word hermeneutical, which, of course, uh, means of or pertaining to the ability to interpret texts correctly. We've seen the way that Chaucer is concerned with the exegetical theme, that is to say, with the theme of reading text and getting them either uh, right or, or wrong. And in a certain sense, the Troilus is, to a large extent, a tragedy of moral misreading. Tra uh, Troilus is not a bad person, <laughs> by any means. He has some really heroic uh, qualities. In fact, one of the differences between Chaucer's treatment of this story and that that you find before him in Boccaccio and after him in Shakespeare is exactly increased moral ambiguity that surrounds both Troilus uh, and uh, Criseida. But Troilus does make uh, a number of tragic misinterpretations and they are dramatized in the fifth book. In fact, you can think of the fifth book as a series of tests for uh, Troilus is presented uh, in an almost postmodern way with a series of signs. This has to do with sign theory, therefore, with a series of signs that he has to try to interpret. He has a dream that is an enigmatic dream that needs interpretation. Text, these texts in the form of letters from Criseida. These two are ambiguous and seem to need uh, interpretation. There's a wonderful scene when he's simply standing on the ramparts, looking out at the plain, hoping against hope that he will see Criseida coming back to the city from the Greek camp. And what he actually sees is just a bread truck, uh, essentially, which he misinterprets uh, as her return, and in a very brilliant move at the very end uh, of the poem, he sees what even the author calls a sign, namely the brooch that he had given to Criseida, which she in turn had given to Diomedes, which Deiphobus in turn had grabbed off Diomedes in a battle outside uh, the city, and we'll. Uh, we will look at that uh, at that scene too. <laughs> so, what is happening uh, in uh, Book uh, Five? At the very beginning, we don't have a proemium, but the opening stanzas of the poem make it clear that the bleakest sort of tragedy uh, is now about to uh, descend. <clears throat> that moment has come for the actual exchange of Crusader. Let's remind ourselves of a few things about this. It is, in the first place, a most unjust thing for the Trojan authorities to be doing. As Hector said in a beautiful but uh, uh, impractical speech in the Trojan uh, Senate, she is not a prisoner. How can she be being exchanged for uh, a... Uh, how can she be being exchanged for a prisoner? The second thing about it is that the exchange of Crusader occasioned the opportunity for us to see the extraordinary and culpable passivity of Troilus. 
He refused to do anything about it. And in fact, turn of Crusader, around which he builds his anti-Boethian theory that he lacks the freedom of the will. He has no choice to act uh, in uh, Book Five. He can only be the subject uh, of. Uh, uh, he can only be the subject of actions uh, taken by uh, taken by other people. So, of course, this is a major way in which uh, Bo uh, Boethius uh, also comes uh, also comes into uh, comes into the text. As the book begins, they're just about to make the exchange. And you've got to imagine that a group of the leading Trojan knights have ridden out from the gates of the city into the kind of no man's land between them and the Greeks. You've seen this scene in countless westerns. And the other guys come up. Uh, everybody serves. Everyone is very, uh, very uh, wary. And you have a symbolic action, uh, which we've seen elsewhere in Chaucer, uh, where he actually, he's the one who actually is leading the bridle, holding the bridle by which uh, Crusader is being led. I don't know, do you remember the scene? Uh, Pandarus leads Crusader in a very similar manner by the lap, uh, he says, by this cloth that is hanging uh, from the cloth that is hanging from her loins. Or you may remember at the end of the Wife of Bath prologue, when she gives us that optimistic history of her last husband, who, after their big fight, gave in to her completely, turned over uh, all authority to her. He yapped me all the breedle in mean homes. So it's obviously a symbolic and iconographic action. And they ride out, and Troilus has the awful uh, experience of actually having to hand the bridle uh, over to uh, Diomedes. Now, we don't have a lot of character development for Diomedes, but we need to remind ourselves who he is in ancient uh, literary tradition. He is one of the two very clever super spies who eventually get into Troy and steal the Palladion. This is the, <laughs> the event uh, that then makes it possible uh, for the Greeks to capture the city. Because without the protection of Pallas Athena, the goddess of the city, uh, the city uh, is going to fall. And I told you way back at the beginning of the poem uh, how clever Chaucer has been about this. He presents us with a city, Troy, that has as the object of its adoration uh, <laughs> an idol that or worshipping, if you remember, in the opening scene of, of, of the poem. Diomedes steals that. I mean, not within our poem, but we're supposed to know that as readers of classical literature. Now, Troilus, small Troy, has his idol. You notice how uh, the love in this poem is presented as a kind of uh, extravagant uh, idolatry. Uh, so uh, Diomedes is going to capture both the idol of great Troy uh, and the idol of small uh, uh, Troy. Uh, Diomedes is not a particularly pleasant person. In fact, I will go so far as to say he is a positively unpleasant uh, person. Remember how much effort has been expended and how much tragedy actually on keeping this love affair secret. That's the reason, says Troilus, that he can't simply go public. Why doesn't he just go to his father and say, look, Crusader and I are in love. We want to get married. Um, Ixnay on the exchange and so on. He says, we can't, uh, we, we can't do that. There's been a tremendous effort to keep the love affair between uh, Troilus and Crusader secret. <laughs> well, it sure hasn't worked because the moment Diomedes, who doesn't know either one of them, the moment he looks at the situation here, he knows exactly uh, what the score is. Uh, as Chaucer uh, puts it on page 561 in, at line uh, 90 or so, <clears throat> he says, uh, of which scene, the son of Tidius, that is to say Diomedes, at which the son of Tidius took aid as hay that could more than the crade in Switchcraft. 
he knows more than the Apostles' Creed about this. If you were a Christian in the Middle Ages, you didn't have, you know, might not know anything really about your religion, but you'd know the Lord's Prayer and a few other things they said in church, including creed. It says that Diomedes knows more than his creed about this kind of uh, uh, love uh, stuff. So he decides, since it's going to be a fair ride back to the, we don't know how far it is, but it's going to take a certain amount of time, uh, he decides, what the hell? This is a pretty good looking uh, uh, woman. I'm going to give it a try myself, you know. Uh, nothing ventured, nothing gained. And he throws out his line as though it were a fish hook, and he starts uh, talking pretty uh, to Crusade. Now, to give her uh, credit, um, she withstands his blandishments for a distance of at least 800 yards and a period of at least, you know, sort of 48 hours or something like, uh, something like that. But to be the one who steals or who gets uh, Crusader. We've known that from the front, from the beginning, because the, 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 the poet uh, told us that. Book five then recapitulates. Notice in a very dramatic way, it recapitulates what we saw in book one. What we saw in book one was Troilus falling in love and responding to that by going back to his bedroom and moping. The author, the narrator, has said we're dealing with a double sorrow, the double sorrow of Troilus. The first of those sorrows is falling in love in the first place. The second is the tragic way that the love affair ends. Therefore, in you do have a recapitulation of that scene in book one. That is, when this happens, Troilus goes back to his bedroom, uh, moans and groans, and is again uh, visited uh, by uh, is again uh, visited by uh, Pandarus. But we're given a particular hint on page 563 uh, that he is disturbed by terrible dreams. At line 246, when he fell in any slumberings, anon began he showed for wool to groan, and dreamen of the dreadfulest of thingas that bane, as mate he were alone in plas horrible mocking all his moan, or maten or to dream that he was among us all his enemies, and in here Pondu's fall. He dreams, he has nightmares. He dreams in terrible places. He dreams uh, that he has been taken uh, or captured by his enemies. Now, at this point in the, uh, in this point in the book, uh, we only uh, have uh, a very general uh, description of the dreams. Chaucer has saved a uh, truly important dream uh, for uh, a little bit later. Now, this dream does exist in the text of Boccaccio. That is to say, the dream, the specific dream that I'll talk about in a moment, uh, and that he needs to have uh, explicated. Chaucer has kind of cut it in two here because he wants to uh, place this matter in the foreground of the fifth book, I think, because he's drawing to attention to the fact that dreams and dream interpretation, which everywhere in Chaucer, stand in surrogacy for textual interpretation, for understanding the in literature, that this is going to be a major, uh, major theme in the, in the poem. There's a very surprising thing about all this. Remember the poem that we read in the Canterbury Tales that has a lot of dream lore in it? Which one is that? The Nun's Priest's Tale. That's right. It's all about the interpretation of a dream. Right? Well, the Nun's Priest's Tale presents the information concerning dreams and dream lore and dream interpretation, it seems to me, in a fairly thoroughgoing uh, comic way. You get the same doctrine, and actually you even get some of the same words, repeated words, out of that comic tale of Sartre uh, and Pertolota, you get them here in the Troilus in an unrelievedly uh, tragic uh, mode. That is to say, the interpretation of this dream bears down on the hero and bears down also on us uh, as, as readers as a major 
force of uh, major force of the tragedy. Now this gives him an opportunity to explain to introduce another kind of interprace. We have seen Pandarus in his role as interprace when he was teaching Troilus how to write a letter. And he taught him how to write a letter uh, on the basis of the good doctrine that he would find in the Ars Poetica of Horus. And there it was pretty common because he told him to make sure he shed the little tears on his letter uh, and, uh, and all this uh, kind of stuff. We saw him as an interprete in that opening scene when he comes and talks to uh, Troilus and he's playing the role of lady philosophy. Here we see him in his role as a Latin interprete in the highly technical sense of being a pagan diviner or a dream interpreter because Troilus tells him, I know I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die because I'm having all these terrible dreams. Now notice that both at this point and later on when he gets to the specific dream, his first reaction is not in the slightest ambiguous. He's certain that he knows what the meaning of this experience is, and he's certain that it is a malign experience. Under these circumstances, the job of Pandarus is rather curious. His job is to try to reintroduce doubt and ambiguity uh, into the situation. And that's what he does uh, here uh, on these, uh, in a rather long speech on 564 and 565. He says, he takes the role, that is to say, of Percolosa in the nun's sale. He says, dreams are meaningless. Uh, these old wives' tales, you, you know, nobody can interpret dreams. Uh, are you a man or a mouse? Stand up, quit being... Uh, afraid of your uh, dreams. Uh, we got to get you out of bed, and what we want you to do is to get up and party at the bottom of page uh, 565. Uh, now reese me, Dara, brother Troilus, for certes, it known honor is today to wape, and in, uh, and in the better to juken ghost, just to stay in bed. Uh, let's go out and enjoy ourselves. Now, this is another place uh, in the text where Chaucer is making allusion, in fact, make more than making allusion, he's actually sewed, uh, his, he's, uh, he's sutured his text together uh, with another uh, ancient poem that he was expecting his readers to know about, but I'll have to tell you about. It is the Ars Amatoria, of uh, 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 the, the Ars Amatoria of Ovid. Now, remember that the way that book works is you've got the first book, first two books addressed to men, where to find women and so on. The third book addressed to women, how to get found uh, usefully and so forth. And then there is what in the Middle Ages was considered the fourth book called the Remedium. How to get over having a bad love affair. Now, I've already mentioned in two different lectures the extraordinary degree to which you have medical imagery being used with regard to the love affair in this poem. And it's funny because Troy, uh, because Pandora said, you know, it would be a great solecism in writing your letter if you were to get your terms mixed up as though you were to use medical terms when you're writing about love what that actually does is draw our attention to the extraordinary depth of the, meta, of the medical uh, metaphor uh, here in, uh, in, in the trial. Anyway, uh, Chaucer is here using a bunch of conventions that come out of the Remedia Moris. How do you get over a girlfriend? I told you about one the last time. Use a new nail to drive out the old nail. Now, get rid of the old one by finding a new one. There are lots of girls uh, are, are around. Uh, however, a very good device is just to forget about her and go to a party. Now, this is what uh, Pandarus is suggesting. Let's go over to Sorpedon's house because he's having a house party that lasts for several days. That's one of the things you should do. There are also things you should not do. You should not, do not, under any circumstance, reread 
the love letters that you have received. They said, you just burn them, get rid of them. Notice that Troilus has suddenly taken an Evelyn Wood speed reading course, and he rereads the letters in their entirety. You have the impression he has this huge dossier of letters from uh, Crusader that he's carrying around, and he reads them a hundred times twixt prime and noon. That is, he spends his entire, that's one of these exaggerated statements, of course, uh, just as Ovid says, uh, polyot omnis amator, every lover should turn pale, if sickly white is the proper color for a lover, notice that Troilus, every 20 minutes uh, during the height of his love affair, turns uh, pale. All this is coming out of, uh, out of Ovid. But the real no-no, the worst thing that you can do, uh, is to go back to the places where you enjoyed pleasure with your lover. And it isn't just pleasure, I hate to tell you, but the Latin word uh, in, in Ovid is concubitus, which uh, I won't even translate it for you. I don't need to translate it for you. It, it is, uh, it, it's, it's an inescapable word for uh, sexual intimacy. Yeah, anyway, you're not supposed to go back, you know, to the corner drugstore where you had your first cherry Coke with, with the girl and, and all this kind of thing. And, and so uh, a very essential point uh, a kind of comic point here uh, is that that is exactly what Troilus uh, insists on doing. It's very hard to get the tone of the fifth book right because it's tragic, but at the same time, there are all this kind of uh, funny stuff going on. In fact, I don't know another work of world literature, which is so tragic and at the same time has so many laughing out loud uh, scenes, uh, laughing out uh, loud scenes in it. Anyway, they go to Sarpedon's house party, and Troilus can't enjoy himself uh, at all. Do, do you remember uh, the way Dorothy was in the, uh, in the Franklin tale? Her husband's gone away, and people try to amuse her. They take her into a pleasure garden, walk where there are nice fountains and everything. They play nice music. None of that has any meaning to her. This is another one of these medieval tropes. And that's the way it is with Troilus at the bottom of page Five, six, six, column one. Nor in this world there is known instrument delicious, her wind or touch of cord, as far as any wick hath ever he went, that tongue a tell or hair to may record, that at that fest it Nathwell hair to cord, that every musical instrument that had been created at the party, and nonetheless uh, he uh, didn't uh, like it. He wakes up very early in the morning and he, he says to uh, uh, Pandarus, uh, let's get out of here. Let's sneak over in the early dawn. I want you to understand what is actually happening in this scene. Let's go over and see Crusader's empty house. Now, that's even worse than the drugstore, you know, where you have your uh, cherry Coke or whatever. Poor Pandarus is pretty desperate now, and he's just having to go along uh, with anything that Troilus, uh, that, that, uh, Troilus uh, uh, suggests. So he says, let's go back uh, to the house. Uh, they go in the very early morning. They sneak around so that nobody uh, can see them uh, at all. Uh, and Troilus does something very uh, peculiar. He utters a paraclocitheron. Now, if you've not learned anything at all in English 307 up to this point, I want you to learn what is a paraclocitheron because it is that literary genre which is an address to a door uh, or to a doorkeeper under certain circumstances. And there are quite a few of them in classical literature. That is to say, the lover is locked out of the beloved's house and he either is trying to uh, the janitor, and what the word janitor literally means is a door keeper, Janua, uh, doors, gates, uh, or he's for him or something like this, and you get this thing that is called a paraclocitheron. <clears throat> but it's of an odd, uh, of a, a very odd sort. Now, I've given it to you on this uh, handout. Uh, here is the, uh, here is what Troilus says to the house of Crusader. Time, approximately 3.30 to 4 a.m. Uh, in the morning, and they're kind of looking around to see anybody there. Thus said he, uh, th 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 then said he thus, O palace desolate, 
O hoose of hooses, wheel and basty hick, O palace empty and disconsolate, O thou lantern, of which quaint is the lick, O palace, wheel and day, that now art nick, well outest thou to fall and e to dia, since she is went, that want was us to gia. Well, the rhetoric is fairly out of control, but you can see that he is addressing the house. He's calling it a desolate palace. Desolate because Crusader is no longer there. It's an empty uh, palace. And he also says that it is a lantern, a lamp, in which the has been extinguished because the one who used to guide us is no longer there. O palace, we will croon of whose is all, limited with, with son of all Alyssa. O ring, from which the ruby is Utpala. Uh-oh. Now, do you remember, do you remember Tom, Thomas Ross, the Hugh Hefner of uh, Chaucer's studies? He didn't even notice this one, and it actually absolutely confirms what he was saying a minute ago. Uh, yet sin he may no bet, fain would he kiss thee cold the door as Dorsky for this root, and farewell shrine of which the saint is Ut. Now, <laughs> uh, in the old criticism of Chaucer, th this passage was often described as one of exquisite beauty, Troilus's Paracloth Cicerone. My old professor, who liked to set the cat among the pigeons, D.W. Robertson, tossed off the following line somewhere, and in fact I can't even remember, I think it's in his article called Chaucer Inch. He says in the fifth book, Troilus's ironic wish of the third book, that endless night descend upon the lovers, there you had that kind of, uh, we don't want the sun to rise because we want our moment of love uh, to last forever. Robertson says in the fifth book, Unfortunately, uh, his wish is now ironically fulfilled. A moral and psychological night uh, falls uh, upon him. And then he says, the bitter pun on quaint in the fourth line of the first stanza shows us what it was that Troilus was really interested in. Well, let me tell you that the philological stuff hit the philological fan uh, when Robertson made uh, this uh, remark. He didn't even explain what the bitter pun is, but you know, he's been around Chaucer enough to know that quaint, which is the past participle of the verb, of the verb to quench, that's what, it's, what it obviously means in its primary meaning here, also, as a noun, is very coarse word of male sexual organ, and therefore for sex thought of in a rhetorically uh, in a rhetorically uh, crude way. Now that's a really shocking thing if it is in this poem and if it's in this beautiful moment uh, of the uh, poem. Question is, uh, is it there? Look at the the image in the first stanza. Is that of a lantern? in which the light is, the candle is quaint, that would mean it is exchanged, it is uh, extinguished, or it is this thing quaint. Uh, why does, why does, uh, why does Crusader of a higher social class than Cressida in the Philostrato, I asked myself a few years ago. One of the reasons is he wants her to be able to live in a palace. You get this line now, O palace desolate, who is the patron goddess of, of uh, Troy? Pallas, absolutely. And now we're going to be... You see, when you, once you see that Chaucer is fully capable of this kind of stuff, you, you can't... Well, you have to go all the way with it. Well, let, let's, let's take this. The image here is of a lamp um, uh, of which quaint is the uh, lick. Well, what does quaint mean? It means a couple things. One of them it means is here in the wife of Bath. Uh, uh, prologue. She's talking about uh, her jealous old husband. For certain, old the doctor be your lave, ye shall have quaint ricked enough at Abe. You'll get enough quaint of an evening. That's what it says. He's too great a niggard that would wearn a man to lick the candle at his lantern. You're too stingy if you're the kind of person who would not allow another person to light his candle from your candle. 
doesn't hurt any, you know, it does not uh, taking any, anything away from you. Now, it's a pretty coarse image, as you can see, but the wife of Bath is pretty coarse. Is the image always coarse? By no means. You get the same image in the book of the Duchess. Shea was weak to torture brick that every man may talk of lick enough and hit head nevertheless. This light that does not diminish because you light another candle from it. The point is that it is not ambiguous in the book of the Duchess. It's not ambiguous in the wife of Bath Provence. In the first, it's a totally innocent and chaste image. In the second, it's a totally foul and pornographic image. Only in the Troilus do you have a situation where it is genuinely, genuinely ambiguous, except that it isn't all that ambiguous if you actually chase down uh, all these sources that I'm talking about, because the language of this poem, almost in the kind of Freudian way, often betrays uh, betrays uh, uh, betrays uh, Troilus, but we've got to get on uh, to some uh, uh, other uh, some other uh, signs. Uh, Crusada, meantime, back in the Greek uh, Greek uh, camp, uh, looks around at the situation and uh, decides or has decided that her best uh, move is to fall in with the uh, fall in with the Greeks and go under the protection of Diomedes. She says she's sorry about it, and she's sorry because it means that her reputation for truth is now going to be ruined, and that for the rest of history, uh, women are going to hate her, most of all. In my experience, 40 years of teaching Troilus, that is a true prediction on the part of, uh, Chris, uh, of, of Crusader. Uh, and that uh, she's going to spend the rest of history being the subject of poems about how terrible uh, she is. So you have that uh, kind of uh, a literary, uh, a literary uh, prediction uh, uh, there. Back at the in, in Troy, uh, by now Pandarus absolutely knows what the score is. And when uh, while when Troilus keeps saying, "I think she's going to come back tomorrow," or she'll be back on the next day. Uh, he says, yay, <laughs> Hazelwood's shocking. Yeah, you bet. Oh, yeah, really. This is the kind of uh, way he's talking. And you have this uh, very tender scene that I uh, mentioned uh, uh, a minute ago at the beginning of the, of, of the lecture. It's on page 575 where they're standing on the ramparts of Troy and they look out and uh, I'm sure I see her coming, says, uh, says Crusader. You've been in this situation, I know. I've been in this situation trying to meet somebody uh, in uh, Grand Central Station, uh, and she, well, he, whoever it may, is not showing up, you know, and you're under the clock, and it's five minutes after, and then maybe it's ten minutes after, and almost every person you see, oh, that, no, it isn't. And he looks out, and what he sees is, it's a fare cart. The equivalent of a bread truck is moving across uh, the plane, and he has, uh, he has, uh, mis uh, he has misread, uh, uh, even uh, e even that. <coughs> well, now we're confronted with a dream. We have the big dream. It's on page 576. <coughs> and the, the, uh, the dream is uh, this. It's hot. It's an Ovidian dream, incidentally. The dream itself, parts of it come out of Ovid, where it's interpreted, where the heat is interpreted as the heat of love. It's hot. And in order to get away from the heat, he goes into the forest, into the shade of the forest. Uh, and uh, this is line 1235, 576. So on a day he laid him doomed to sleep, and so befell that in his sleep him thought that in a forest fast he wilt to wake for love of hair that him these pedans wrought. An open dune is in the forest he sought. He met, he saw a boar with tuskers greater that slept again the brictus son of Cata. He dreams that he sees a boar, a large tusked pig. Now, we have to realize that iconographically this is associated with Diomedes because of his association in classical mythology with the Caledonian boar. Everybody just kind of assumes that this is the case. But the really bizarre thing about this uh, is that he sees... Uh, 
the uh, boar and Crusada are lying in the ground on the ground in what might be described as a compromising uh, position, uh, and she seems to be uh, she seems to be uh, enjoying it. Um, Opandarus, he says when he sees this, Opandarus, now no e crop and rota e am but dead. There is no other bota ni vadi brick crusade hath me betrayed in whom he trusted most, most of any way. He interprets it, that is to say, immediately, and I have to say correctly, as a sign that shows him that Diomedes has taken uh, Crusader uh, away, uh, away from him. Now it is Pan- it's Pandarus' role to try to obfuscate this and confuse. He says, oh no, he says, don't leap to hasty conclusions. Your dream could have many other interpretations. And in particular, the one that he's trying to suggest is that the dream indicates the uh, reunion of Crusader uh, and her uh, father uh, back in the Greek camp. Now, in Boccaccio, there's none of this ambiguity at all. The moment that, uh, that uh, Troilus has the dream, he knows that the game is up and the tragedy uh, moves on very briskly to, to its end. I think we have to see what Chaucer is consciously doing here is complicating it uh, with uh, contrived uh, ambiguities. Uh, and I, I would say that we, the same thing is true of the exchange of letters you now have between Troilus and Crusaders. So what Pandarus says to Troilus is, hmm, this is doubtful. You know, I think that if you want to understand what the meaning of this dream is, you ought to write to Crusada and ask her. Notice how surreal it is. The post office seems to operate perfectly well between the Greek uh, camp and, uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, Troy. Pandarus knows, he knows Crusada well enough that she will certainly reach for some sort of ambiguous uh, self uh, exculpation. He, he may not know exactly what's happened, but he feels that he can uh, he can count uh, on her. So that we move from the dream, which is ambiguous enough, to an artfully constructed uh, series uh, uh, series of letters uh, from uh, uh, artfully constructed series of letters uh, from Crusada. But he goes uh, eventually to the great dream interpreter, interpreter of world literature, who just happens to be his sister. Cassandra is the sister of Troilus. And the job of Cassandra, through now something like two and a half thousand years uh, of Western literary history, is to tell the truth and be called a liar by liars. And that's exactly uh, what happens here. And when he goes to her, to get the interpretation, it's on page 580. <coughs> when he does it, uh, notice the extraordinary footnote on page 580, where you have this annotation that appears in all the manuscripts, which is a 12-line summary of the Tobiad of Statius, with one line turned over to, uh, each, uh, uh, to each of the books. What is being said here is that the tragedy of Troilus is uh, inextricably linked uh, with this ancient history, this ancient history that the players ought to have known better. Now do we remember that when uh, Pandarus first came to Crusader's house, she was with a bunch of her girlfriends reading the story of Thebes, and that got interrupted. And now they, maybe they wish they'd gotten to the end of the, uh, end of the book, they could have avoided uh, s- some of this. Anyway, uh, Cassandra tells him, right where the hog eats the cabbages, the silk of boar betokeneth Diomed, Tidia's son, that doom descended is from Malegra, that mod the boar to blade, and the lady, where so Shebe he wist, this Diomed, uh, hath, uh, her hair cast, and she his. Wape if thou won't, or lape, for Udabdut, and then one of his great wives, for oot of doot, this Diomede is in, and thou art oot. You know, and that is the history uh, of uh, the sad history, according to uh, Cassandra. And, of course, the uh, reaction is 
oh no, this can't possibly be uh, your line. There has to be uh, some other uh, interpretation. So he failed in the interpretation of the dream. He failed in the interpretation of the cart. He now gets a letter from Crusader. <coughs> and it is a Lulu uh, of uh, a letter. Its summary is on page 582 in the first full paragraph there. Uh, yet pray, H. Thou, enabled Yena's pocket, don't take it bad, that it is short, my letter is short, which that Itoyo Rita, he dare not, there I am, well, leprous maka, no, never yet, ne could, he well indeed, uh, a great effect men reap in Plata Lita, the intent is all. What a great line. The intent is all. We've studied Chaucer long enough to know what the intent is all. What do you think the intent of this letter is? Listen, I know what kind of a letter this is. I've had a hundred of them. This is a classic Dear John letter. Okay? <laughs> the, the intent of, uh, is all, not the letter spasa. And fareth now well, and have yo uh, in his grasa la vostra say. The only two places in this poem where he violates the beautiful metrical symmetry of the whole thing is in the signature of these letters. La vostra say for crusader. Lavostra pay uh, for uh, Troilus. And then you got this great line, this Troilus, this letter thought all stronger when that he saw, and sorrow which he sick, he thought it the, the challenge of the Chonga. He thought it was like that time when you come to the end of the month and you pull off the old sheet and you go for a long, long way from May to December and he's gone uh, leap here. This is so beautiful, so dense. I wish I had more time, uh, actually, uh, to uh, to uh, talk about it. But I'm getting to be rather breathless, as is the narrator, who at 583 at the bottom says, uh, if I'd had uh, time uh, to uh, uh, talk about uh, his, he says, if I'd talked, talk in Puerto Rita. The armas of this Ilka worthy man. If I had been writing an Aeneid rather than the tragic Iliad that I'm writing, you would have a different kind of poem. He's becoming more uh, and, and, and more uh, classical. He's also desperately tries to say that this is not a book about bad women. On the contrary, it's a book about bad men. If you look at history, he says. There have been far more uh, men uh, who treat uh, women uh, badly than there have been women who treat men uh, badly. Then he addresses his book on page 584. Go little book, he says. Go little mean tragedia. Look how quickly all of a sudden this, uh, this is ending. Pay a special attention how quickly Troilus dies. I'll show you in a minute, but he dies in about a 30-second period uh, in this poem. After thousands of lines of dilation uh, about the uh, about the uh, about the war, go little book, go little mean tragedia. Their God be mocker yet ere that he dea, so send a mick to mock in some comedia. Nobody can read this Middle English. It's very difficult. But what he seems to be saying is, it's a prayer to God, hoping that God will give the maker of this book. Remember that the word maker is the old English word for poet the one who's created the book, the inspiration to do a little comedy, having completed his tragedy. Uh, I interpret this as a nod to the project, no doubt already underway, of writing the Canterbury. Sort of, I've said a couple times. So I'm now finished with Troilus, but I'm already thinking about uh, writing the uh, the. Uh, the, the, the Canterbury uh, tales. Anyway, at line 1800, he says, I'm not writing about the arms of this man. I'm writing about the wrath. The wrath of Achilles, <laughs> and the wrath of Achilles is now uh, going to uh, kill Troilus. At the end of that stanza, says he was the greatest uh, warrior in the army, except for Hector, but well away, probably only God as will a dispituously him slew the fierce Achilles. Then, in two lines, uh, Troilus is dead. And then something very strange happens. 
<laughs> something very strange textually happens, but something very strange thematically or interpretively happens. We know that Chaucer has been translating the Philostrato of Boccaccio. But at this point, you get several stanzas that come not from the Philostrato, but from the Tesseda. The Tesseda being the story of Duke Theseus that we saw a version of in the Knight's Tale. Now, do you remember when Arsita died? He just died, you know. Well, he died pretty spectacularly, turned all sorts of different colors and grown and all this kind of thing. But it was, there was nothing that happened to him uh, after he died except that he was uh, uh, immolated uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a huge uh, bonfire. What happened in Boccaccio was that he enjoyed this moment of sidereal ascension. This is something that happens in classical and medieval literature. That is, the hero dies and his spirit is taken up to some high place from which he looks down in a state of comparative enlightenment and is able then to understand his experience. So what Chaucer has done is he suppressed that part of the Tesseda when he was actually doing the Tesseda. And the reason I, I know why he did it, because he'd already used it here in the Troilus. It was very important for him to have Troilus have a higher view. Uh -huh. And it's a passage that is closely imitated from a, a great moment in Dante, where Dante goes up to the highest heavens and looks down and he sees the little world, the world that is so far away. Here Ch Ch uh, Chaucer calls it here a little spot of earth, but it looks like the size of a postage stamp. And he has to think, you know, is this, look, is this what I've been getting so bent out of shape about? Look at all those little people down there mourning my death. You know, and here I am in the hollowness of the eighth sphere until Mercury takes him and says, Mercury, who is the psychopomp, a great word, that is the person who leads your soul around in the pagan afterlife. And, and Chaucer doesn't tell him where he goes. He tells us where he goes. He just said he took him, he went where uh, Mercury took him uh, to dwell. Now, you have to have a pretty ambiguous poem in order for half of the great Chaucerians in the world to think that Troilus at the end of this poem goes to heaven and half of them think that he goes to hell. <laughs> uh, but that's exactly what the situation with regard to uh, uh, Chaucerian scholarship is. Since you're at Princeton University and you're very lucky, you've got Professor Fleming, I'll tell you the real truth. That <laughs> there is, uh, it's pretty easy because there is no real heaven in the classical afterworld, there is simply the, you know, the nether world of which there is a high rent district that is Elysium, and the good people go there, but that's not the equivalent by any of, uh, of, of heaven, and I'm sure that that uh, is where uh, Troilus, uh, where Troilus goes, looking down at this little spot of earth that with the sea and Brossid is, and then you get something really, really surprising and I hope shocking. The same thing that you get at the very end of the Canterbury Tales. Our narrator has been rigorous in his integrity as a non-judgmental historical novelist. And the translator, I'm just giving you what's in the text. I'm not making any little comments of my own except occasionally about Crusada and how she really meant to be nice and all that kind of thing. But I don't comment at all on pagan uh, religion or anything like that. Now, all of a sudden, the narrator of the Troilus starts talking like the narrator of the Troilus. That is to say, like a 14th century English um, aristocratic writer. And he condemns in the strongest possible term the entire religious and moral system of the poem that he spent all this time uh, writing with such, uh, loving, with such loving care. And it's quite embarrassing, because he addresses it directly to you in words that come from Ovid. O fresha, young afoka, hay or shay. Boys and girls is the way I would interpret this. Boys and girls, you know, don't fall in love the way Troilus did. Love Jesus. I, you know, it's that shocking, but this is exactly what he does, uh, what he does say. The pale, the conventional, the... Uh, expected the anodyne moral 
that you know has been uh, so uh, scrupulously eschewed up to this uh, time in the point uh, up to this time in the poem uh, comes now uh, absolutely to the surface, and you get this very bitter uh, passage. Uh, read it uh, carefully, uh, which he summarizes all of the classical tradition of poetry out of which he's made his point. And he says it's just a bunch of pagan cursed rites and a bu bunch of uh, unbounded lust and a bunch of silly gods whom he actually calls rascai, rascal gods, uh, that is to say, uh, ruffians, uh, woe-rites. It's a very insulting kind of language. And then he turns to his two friends, Moral Gower and Philosophical Strode. Would you like to be either Moral Gower or Philosophical Strode? If you have to choose between one or the other, well, he, he turns to uh, John Gower, who's himself a great English poet, and Ralph Strode, a famous philosopher, a linguistic philosopher of his day, and he says, uh, this is a point that I'm turning over to you for your, uh, your uh, correction uh, and your uh, emendation. A great poet, that is to say, and a great expert on the way that language can convey truth. A linguistic philosopher, uh, Strode. Uh, I think that uh, indicates to us, if we needed any more indication, the two main things that Chaucer is bringing together in this poem. One, it's his celebration of the ancient literary tradition in which he now is enrolling himself now has written his epic poem following the advice of Horace and it's been about uh, the, uh, the, the Trojan War. But his great theme is uh, the investigation of the way in which language can or cannot uh, convey truth under two different systems, under different moral uh, uh, visions and so on. I will try to uh, uh, Link the Troilus a little bit with the uh, with the Canterbury Tales in a synoptic way uh, next time, but I'm going to leave rather in a hurry because I want to go to this uh, memorial.